Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. Joey and Joel are not with me today because they are traveling. Instead of them, I've got someone way cooler anyway. So I've got one of my, I'd say, most formative heroes, uh, Mr. Gene Hoagland. Thank you for being here. Hey, all It's a pleasure to be here, man. I got to admit, I'm a big fan of yours, man. I, oh, really? I, I dug awesome. Doth tons and liked all your work and i know we've done some touring together and that was a great time so i'm a big fan as well well thank you that means a lot i wasn't sure if you remembered the touring or not with us because that was it was a few years ago but absolutely all right so i have a question about that about the fear factory tour in europe did you guys get stranded at the end stranded yes some of us did yeah uh, i remember there was a huge uh what was that a, a, a snowstorm yeah blizzard of all yep. blizzards over there in in england and we we ran like hell over to uh over to heathrow and then we got we got the turn back there some of the crew made it on their flights and that's that's good but uh i think a few band members got left behind for four or five days and i remember we had to drive to paris de gaulle airport and got five minutes before we we're boarding that plane paris decided to have some kind of a luggage handler strike one of those like hour-long oh, strikes and so we're like oh man God, we've come all this way and then we ended up getting home uh, or flying into lax we landed at about midnight on christmas morning essentially and i had a two-hour drive home to san diego they didn't get me a flight home to san diego so i had to drive drive there and then i ended up getting a uh, a flat tire on the way home first first one i'd had in years and then uh amazing i ended up pulling into the to you know my place at about 5 30 a.m on christmas morning and i remember my lady and myself we were hosting a big christmas christmas dinner for the entire family and so you know slept for about an hour and got up and started cooking turkey or something well just so just for people who aren't aware of what happened basically this was doth was on tour with high on fire and fear factory you were playing with fear factory and this was winter of 2010 and it was very bad weather wise but i guess there was this one snowstorm that took out all the airports or a lot of the airports and heathrow got hit especially hard and it was like literally on the day that the tour was ending or the day before basically i think 200,000 people got stranded holy moly oh yeah they they put us in a refugee tent for refugee tent holy yeah yeah dude we got to heathrow and there was like a tent city set up and they gave us uh they gave us the foil blankets oh my gosh you guys were essentially like sleeping outside in a tent yeah well yeah then they had cots and everything oh that is psychotic 
Yeah, I have pictures of it. I'll actually post pictures in the show notes for anyone that's curious. But yeah, so we got the foil blankets. Normal people were flipping out on each sure. other. It was it was one of those uh, one of those. I always think about this like when there's a gas shortage or something, and you see normal people just like going crazy in the gas lines, fighting each other. It was kind of one of those deals, or a zombie apocalypse or something. You know, yeah, could happen. <laughs> and and you will see people. Uh, you will see people definitely regress. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, that was crazy. We were fortunate enough. We got placed in. You know, there was a hotel down the way, and so you know, we stayed for four or five days in this hotel. So you know, gosh, it sure sounds like we got a little a better shake than you guys did. That's terrible. Well, oh well. The the part that was funny about that was, I guess, we got so desperate being there that. One flight opened up, and we just got on it, no matter where it was going. Yeah, sure, and sure. And we d- ended up in Canada. Oh, Lord. Yeah, rather than Atlanta. So somehow we got to Canada, and we had to explain what was happening. Uh, eventually, we rented a uh, a van to cross the border to go to Detroit airport. Yeah, sure. Man, it was just a mess. But uh, Man, yeah, it sounds like a mess. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk music. Uh, All righty. One thing, and I've actually wanted to ask you this before um it was one of the things that if i ever had the chance to ask you i would so i have the chance and i'm going to back in the day when i discovered you that was on individual thought patterns and i was maybe 14 or 13 and i was first starting to get into metal or maybe i was like a year into it and i kind of thought i knew what metal drums were supposed to be and then i heard that and your playing was so different it was i mean it, technically it was incredible but it was so different it had so much of a of a groove that i didn't hear in that style before i wasn't familiar with sean reiner's work at that point fair enough yeah so it was my introduction to like stuff um to metal drumming that wasn't just, I guess, double bass. wasn't just like thrash beats. It was pulling pulling from many different places. And I saw that in your new DVD, Tom O'Clock Two, you talk about how you're not afraid to uh, incorporate outside influences. And I wanted, to, I just wanted to hear more about that. I want where those influences come from, and how you actually go about incorporating them into your style. Well, I know that when. Uh, well, thank you very much. That's very cool. I know that around the individual thought patterns era, I was, you know, I had obviously like you know grown up listening to a lot of Neil Peart, and prior for about four or five years prior to to individual i was i had gotten so into al di miola and especially like the steve gad era of of al di miola and his playing was just so tasty and, and here and it was it was like neil peart it was very gettable it was very understandable you could work out what he's playing and some of it was technical but you're like hey it's not so technical that i can't figure that out like like a dave weckle or a Terry Bozio Ostinato pattern or something, but yeah, uh, still music. It, it was, and and Steve Gadd just he laid everything down so tasty, such a groove, such such feel to his playing, and he was he was kind of the guy that introduced me to the beat that is called a bembe beat, and it's kind of a uh, it's essentially just kind of a shuffly paradiddle, really. Um, 
but you can play that all over the kind of six six eight feel you know it's kind of don't don't do that don't 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 do that don't 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 do that don't do that was such an amazing beat it's you know like that beat is directly from an aldi miola song called casino and when I was, when Chuck and I were rehearsing the record, we, we, we put individual together in about three weeks from me arriving in Florida to, to tracking it. And, you know, that was just a kind of an approach that I wanted to do because Death was pretty well known for songs like, you know, like Leprosy, where yeah. they have the, you know, the, the, the kick drums are just kind of doing the little double bass thing and the snares landing where it lands. And I just thought, well, hey, why don't you try, you know, applying that bimbe beat to it? And uh, and then you can kind of use that as a jumping off point to start trying it with double rides and try it with double hi hat and and I, I started you know uh, the bembe beat has a certain pulse to it and you can kind of take the hand portion of that pulse and apply it to when you're just cruising with nonstop alternating kicks on on the feet. And, you know, it makes kind of a, a tasty little flavor. And there's licks on there that I could point out. Well, I got this from, you know, I got this lick in individual thought patterns from, uh, you know, like YYZ from Rush or whatever and things like that. So Chuck was very open to, you know, all of our ideas, mine, Stevie D's, and he, he was always very, very gracious, very accommodating about like, hey, yeah, I can, you know, I can play, I can play my riffs over what you're playing. I'm, I'm, I'm locking into everything. So go sick, go nuts, be creative, you know, be you. And I, you know, that was, that was really refreshing, you know. And I admit that when, when I got the call from Chuck and we were, you know, talking about getting together, I was kind of under the, you know, after hearing Human, and yes, Human had definitely some progressive, definitely progressive jazz fusion tendencies from Sean Reiner, you know, amazing drums on that album, a real template setter, I thought. I kind of thought that maybe Chuck and I were going to write this most psychotic death metal opus of all time. And when I got what I refer, I've referred to for years as the adorable little riff tape that he sent, <laughs> I was like, whoa, I was taken aback, man. I was like, wait a minute, there, there, there's, there's like no death metal on this thing, you know? A lot of the... A lot of the riffs were really high up on the neck, and you know, I, I, I play a lot of guitar, and I was able to figure out the riffs pretty a lot of them anyway. And so, you know, when I got together with Chuck, I, you know, I've mentioned this before that we got together on the very first night. You know, stopped off, had had dinner at a restaurant, went back to his place, and I said, "Hey, Chuck, let's whip out some guitars. Help, you know, show me these riffs because it'll help me like solidify what I'm doing on the drums." And he's showing me the riffs, and I'm like, "Hey, why don't we try, you know?" dropping some of these riffs down the neck or up the neck, whatever you guitarists call it. And, you know, let's get them in the lower registers. He's like, wow, I never even thought of that. Cool idea. So having the riffs in my hands as well really helped kind of solidify where certain pulse points should be and, and certain accents should be. And because and, there was a lot on that adorable little riff tape that I I couldn't quite make out. I knew essentially what he was doing, but but you know, having having the guitar in both of our hands was was a real help in in that, and so my influence has just absolutely ranged all over the place on, on that record. Totally. Well, you know, so this podcast normally 
I'd say 85% of the time or 80% of the time, we focus on producers and production. And every once in a while, we bring in musicians that we think have something to say or, you know, uh, maybe someone who's been on the business end of it who has great stuff to share. But one thing that we always tell the producer guys is learn as many instruments as you can because you're not going to be able to communicate with the musicians quite the same as having actually played that instrument. So, for instance, yeah, I took drum lessons for six months, even though I'm definitely not a drummer, voice lessons. And so hearing you right now say that you learned the riffs on guitar, that that explains so much to me. Um, that Oh, cool. Yeah, that, that definitely helps me understand how those drums were that musical. Uh, how many instruments do you play? I just, I tend to play the stringed instruments and, you know, besides drums and, and, you know, I could play, I, I play guitar. I've been, you know, I've, I've played guitar on many a dark angel record and, and that sort of thing. That's, that's me playing guitar on a lot of that. And that was me, you know, when I was learning guitar, but, you know, I play bass. I've, I've played guitar and bass on later records and stuff. It's like whatever gets the job done, really. But that's one thing I – that's the reason why I learned how to play guitar because it's like I wanted to play drums. I never wanted to be a guitarist in a band. I wanted to be the drummer. But I always thought, well, you know, you are going to be able to communicate your idea way better if you could directly show it to your guitarist. You can communicate to all your other musicians in your band. You know, I sing a lot, too. I wrote, like – pretty much the majority of the vocal lines on like time does not heal for instance from dark angel and 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 i've just if you can communicate and you know it's kind of like occam's razor you know the the simplest way to communicate is you Mm -hmm. show them the riff rather than doing the like the i don't know the lars ulrich style of hum the riff to the guy and he's going to try to (laughs) figure out what you're humming and oh you don't have that third note right you know it's like here let me just show you so that's kind of why I got stuck playing guitar on a lot of these Dark Angel records because a lot of my guitarists were just like, uh, you play that, you know, like you track it, we'll learn it, but it's going to take us a while to learn that. So I have noticed, and, and you know, in these days I can, there are so many drummers who are guitarists. There are many, so many drummers that, in, in, especially in the heavier styles of music is I can listen to, I'm getting pretty good at being able to pick out albums or bands or songs where hey the drummer writes all this stuff i can tell because this is not a guitarist's approach i can tell this is a drummer's approach and sometimes i'm able to talk to the drummer of the band and i'll ask hey, did you did you write this album and he's like yeah i did i was like i knew it you know so stuff like that so you know it's it's helpful definitely learn 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 the other instruments and you can communicate very easily. On the topic of communication, with a career like yours that's been as long as it is and in as many different bands that you've either been in or done sessions for, that would have been impossible unless your communication game was on point. Uh, Fair enough. There's I mean, I don't I don't see how it could work unless you you really know how to communicate. I just don't I, I don't see any other way. So uh, I'm wondering, like, say a situation like Opeth in 2005, where you guys are on tour and shit happens with the drummer sure. and they need somebody. And I only know about that because I happen to be 
backstage at that show. Wow. So, yeah, it's a strange little bit of trivia because um, I guess Mike was recording his parts for Roadrunner United at my house. Okay. And, like, literally on the day that their drummer uh, kind of decided, you know, made some decisions. And, um, yeah. And you took over. But didn't you learn that in, like, a day? Uh, it was, it was like, I don't know, four hours, six hours, something like that. I recall the first show being in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, you know, I walked into catering that, you know, like about noon. That was about the time I woke up at that at that time and I walked in I you know I saw all the Opeth guys looking all really glum and you know just all dejected and I sat down at their table like what's going on guys what's happening and they explained that we've you know we've lost Martin we have a show in like four hours six hours I remember it was a revolving headlining act sort of thing so sounds um, of the underground Sounds of the Underground, yeah. And like some days they would be the late headliner. Sometimes they would be the early headliner and other headliners after them sort of thing. I think Lamb of God was on that, Unearthed. But Chimera, I think, was one of the other kind of revolving headliners. And and at this day, Opeth was one of the earlier scheduled headliners. So we had until about 4 o'clock or maybe perhaps 6 o'clock or something. And, you know, they they. I think they had said, hey, you know, I don't suppose you'd want to take a crack at this, would you? And I was like, sure, let's try it. Let's give it a shot, you know? So I remember we set up Martin's drums for that, and I played Martin's drums for that gig, and I, he, he's got a pretty, you know, a, a rather differing setup than mine. So I think we went back to my drums for all the subsequent shows. But, yeah, it was, you know, we, we sat in the back of the Opeth tour bus, and, I just kind of pounded, pounded on a pillow and, you know, I got the discs from, from the guys and I just, you know, it was a four song set. It was a rather short set, you know, 40 minute set or something, but that's, you know, four 10 minute songs there. And, and, you know, it was, I'm always up for challenges. I, I, you know, and plus if I could help my friends out, you know, just by, by playing drums for them, yeah, sure. No problem. So, you know, I I ended up playing about 17 shows on that tour with them and it was great. I love Opeth, you know? And so that was, that was a pretty fantastic tour. And, you know, I love strapping too. So I got to play with two of my favorite bands on the same day. Ooh, that's super, super bonus for me. So sounds pretty cool. When approaching the material and, talking to them about it did you guys have to discuss a lot of it or was it just here's the music good luck it was essentially here's the music you know i think i think michael he sat with the guitar and we were like going through the entire song like i i listened to the music for a couple of hours and i had played one song with them actually two songs with them previously on one night in Vancouver when they ran into a similar situation with 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 Martin Martin wasn't present on this tour and he was a last minute no show on his part so they had their drum tech playing the easiest songs he could play which were their ballads so when they had come to Vancouver about a year earlier I'd gotten the call the night before hey can you learn a you know Pick a song, please learn it, and come down and play it with us. And I remember calling Devin, because I wasn't that familiar with Opeth at the time. I called Devin and said, hey, what's a good song to play? He's like, you know, do the Drapery Falls. And I was like, is that the one that I've heard you play before? He's like, yeah. I was like, okay, I'll play that one. So, um, you know, and since then I had, I had, I had, 
gotten into Opeth, and I, I just remember I watched every one of their shows. I think it was like they played about ten shows with Martin, and I caught every single minute of every show. So, you know, it's if, if I get the chance to hear songs, you know, get them in my head, then that's where the mentality of of drums are ninety percent mental, ten percent physical. If you have them in your brain. Chances are you're going to have them in your in, in your hands as well. And the one thing that I was noticing a lot was, you know, when I was actually breaking the songs down, listening to them in the emergency situation, I'm like, okay, I know a Phil's about to come in here. I guess I'm going to play this. And Martin plays exactly the Phil I'm thinking of. And and I remember having a conversation with him a few days before he'd left the tour, and he 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 had said that you know he. He listened to the Individual Thought Patterns album a lot, and you know I was quite the influence. And so, having that sort of mindset and kind of the Latin mindset towards a lot of his approaches, it made it way easier than if it was just like some crazy math metal or something that I had to really figure out. It was just there was such a natural groove, and it's like Martin on his recordings was laying down licks that as I'm listening to them, essentially, you know, breaking them down for the, like the first time, I'm like, okay, well, hey, he's playing the stuff I would play. So that, that makes it 10 times easier. So it, it was a challenge. I'm always up for challenges, but you know, it, there were, there were certain roadblocks that were not present that made it an even smoother situation. So that's interesting that it sounds like your knowledge of, other styles or of other or you having other influences allowed you to pick it up a lot faster i would suppose that, that that's a help you know but also having an interest in their music and having an interest yes. in them as people you know it's like ah oh, these you know because it's like if if they don't figure out this situation pretty much you know staring at the watch in the next few hours they're gonna have to go home and it's like hey let's let's have that not happen it's 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 yeah. <laughs> easy enough to do so you know let's just do it and make it happen and you know i've i've had to do situations that are very similar later on in in my career you know i've done i've done the same thing with anthrax essentially on tour with testament and anthrax and you know uh, charlie had to leave the tour and he, he approached me about, hey, man, can you take over for me? I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. Let's let's make it happen. I've got three days to learn this material. Piece of cake. You know? I remember bumping into you in 2009. You rescued an Unearth tour. Oh, that's right, yeah, 2007. Well, oh, 2007. Yeah, you're right. That's right. I had just toured with them in Europe, and then I guess they had a blowout with their drummer or whatever. I guess so, yeah. And then yeah. you came and saved the tour. I remember that. <laughs> that was another interesting situation. I got a, I was on my way from LA up to Vancouver where I was living, Vancouver, Canada, and uh, I was going back up there to do edits on my DVD at the time, my first DVD, and I got a phone call from Unearth's management saying, hey, had a situation with the drummer last night in Canada, and they've got the night off tonight, but they're playing tomorrow night in Vancouver. Can you swing in and, you know, can can we get together and, and you play this show? I'm like, I, I'm willing to do it, but I'm only in Oregon right now, or I'm, I'm at the, you know, kind of the Northern California area about to enter Oregon. And they said, okay, give us a minute. If you're into it, cool, give us a minute. And they called me back a few minutes later and they said, you know, what town are you near? 
And I said, I think I'm near Salem. And they said, okay, we assume that. So we have called a Best Buy in Salem. Will you please stop by that Best Buy and pick up these two latest Unearth records <laughs> and you know just learn them overnight? And I was like, okay, great. I've got about another 10 hours of driving to go from here. So sure, no problem. You know, I'll, I'll stop in and I'll you know, just give me the track listing that you guys want and, and I'll, I'll check out the songs. And so I did overnight and then, you know, we got together for a very brief rehearsal that afternoon. And, and then later that night we were playing a show and I jumped on the tour for, that was another three weeks or so of playing with them. And that was great. You know, how you just said maybe five minutes ago that it's 90% mental. There was a friend of my dad's who was a jazz drummer he his name was Harry Blazer, I believe, and he played for like Tina Turner and Paul Anka, and then also would do these big jazz tours. And he was one of those dudes who's just phenomenal. And I remember asking him at one point, "Do you practice anymore?" And he said, "No, I don't practice. I just visualize." Yes. So you you agree with that? I agree with that big time, yeah. And I, you know what? I didn't even know that it was called visualization until about a month ago, you know. And and my my lady was explaining, no, that's that's what you have been doing your whole career. It's visualization. And I'm like, oh, is that what that is? I just thought I, you know, I just thought I run over a song in my head a bunch, and I'm kind of in my head playing the drums in my head, and and. You know, putting all the little parts where they got to go in my head. And she's like, that's visualization. So it's like, okay, cool. But yeah, that's, that is essentially what I do. And that's, you know, it, it's, if your mental chops are sharp, your physical chops, even if you've taken a month off or however long it takes for your chops to degrade, your chops come back pretty quickly. But as long as you got the mental grasp of, of the material that you're playing, then, you know, first time you sit on a kit, no problem. You know, like, like for instance, on this last little um, what we just did the seventy thousand tons of metal the cruise a couple of weeks ago, and they had the big all star jam and stuff, and it was a matter of uh, jumping on stage and playing "Hammer Smashed Face" by Cannibal Corpse. Yes, and you know I, I never worked it out beforehand. I listened to it a few times. I got it in my head, and you know we worked it out directly on stage, and it wasn't without its. Uh, it's, uh, you know, butchery, uh, but, uh, you know, and then the same thing went with, uh, metal militia from Metallica, you know, had to do that one with a bunch of guys, you know, there was no rehearsal, there was no, no sound check or anything. So it's like, you know, everybody looks at each other. It's like, okay, go follow me. I'm, I'm, I'm the conductor on this train and I'll try to keep everything within a tempo everybody's comfortable with. So let's hit it. So when you visualize stuff, do you actually go like do you imagine yourself from like uh gene point of view playing the drums like how does it how does it work in your head if you could describe i think so i would imagine that if i'm doing it with like my little invisible air you know mental air drum kit it's it's a lot of that but what i do is i tap my fingers a lot you know i'm always tapping my my i guess my middle finger to my thumb on both hands and that's how i you know i'm working out parts and i I, i'm doing it right now i probably shouldn't do that because i'm probably tapping on the mic but uh (laughs) and i also do the same thing with my toes you know Uh, i got my big toes and i'll just be playing the patterns on my toes and and you know my my lady has walked in on me many times i'm just here lying on the bed eyes closed 
hands across, folded across the chest, just tapping away with my fingers and my toes. And I've had roommates walk in on me. It's like, oh yeah, Gene's learning songs. You know, that's what's happening. But yeah, I, I guess I've got the little, the the Gene point of view of the drum kit, and then just tapping away on the fingers and toes to to work out the parts. A very very incredible violinist. She was the concert master for the Atlanta Symphony for like 20 years. She told me that before she would do a solo, meaning like learn a, a solo concerto or something, sure. before she knew that she was ready, she would play it from start to finish in her head. Absolutely. And if she fucked up, then she knew she wasn't ready. But she said that you're only ready when you can play it in your head without screwing up. I, I agree with that. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that is the way I, 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 I practice that. Absolutely. Word for word, no for note on that. Yeah, totally. You know, you get a song in your head and I don't read music. I don't write music. So it is just a matter of, of, you know, learning it by rote, I suppose. And it's, you know, you get that song in your head, and then when you can walk away from the iPod or the Discman or the iPhone or whatever and put put everything down and then get through the song in your mind, then, yeah, you've got it. So, And then for me, it's like I, I need to do that repeatedly. If I do that once, it's like, okay, that's once. But you got to do this, you know, get it three times right now, you know, especially if it's like, say, a long song or something. You know, really solidify that in your head. And then, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good to have a crack on it. And that's why planes come in handy, you know, when you're flying. Like, geez, I, I, I when I started touring with Testament, I had to take over for, for John Tempesta, who had to leave the tour to go do some work with, with The Cult, who he was also jamming with. And pre, pro, directly prior to the tour, you know, I flew in from a recording session and, you know, it was like a two, three hour flight to the, to I think it was Dallas where I started with, with Testament. And I didn't have any time to prepare beforehand. So it was a matter of, you know, having a disc man and or maybe my iPhone or something yeah I probably had an iPhone at the time you know just checking out the songs on on iTunes or something all the way all the way to the gig and here's your one song you get to sound check with and there's a, it's a 19 song set so hey at least I got to play one song at sound check that was helpful but you know it was an on stage rehearsal that first night and if you're prepared you can pull it off and I've I've you know, it's I, I I've always said it's just drums. It ain't brain surgery. You know, it's 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 music. If, if you make a mistake, it's gonna be okay. Like, don't you know? There's there's it's not life and death. So just to have some fun with it, and you know, take all the pressure off yourself. You know, if you if you play ninety five percent of it well, and then five percent two little parts somewhere you didn't quite get, that's okay. You know, probably nobody notices other than the band or yourself. So I, I never really get down on myself if I if I make a mental error on stage or anything like that. I just, I'm, I'm pretty easy going that way. I can usually let them go and not, not let it fester. It's like, hey, get it next time. You know, just you're you. Just be good and get it next time. So Have, have you always had that attitude of being easy on yourself? In terms of music, I, boy, that's a good question. Um, I, I've always talked about my lethargy. You know, I, I am a legend of lethargy. I like taking the most easiest route to any <laughs> any end result, and that's why usually if there's these days if there's hauling 
killing double bass on a song, chances are that's not my idea. <laughs> you know, that's usually <laughs> the guitarist saying, hey, play some Holly double bass here. And um, I don't find, you know, I guess it's just through experience that if you were to get down on yourself for every tiny little mistake you made, chances are nobody else notices those. I mean, people, you got to be a real dick to point out, you know, hey, you just played this hour and a half long show, but you made one tiny mistake. You know, somebody's got to be a real jerk <laughs> to come up and mention that. I don't think anybody ever, you know, other than like, say, my friends who know my playing, they'll come up and go, hey, I caught that. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, but I remember playing, you know, I was playing with Testament. We were doing this song called The Persecuted Won't Forget, and it's off the uh, Formation of Damnation record, and that was Paul Bostaff playing on that. I remember Paul sitting right behind me as I'm playing this song, and I totally blew it right in front of him. And, you know, I went up to him and was like, hey, Paul, you saw I blew your song. He's like, yeah, but hey, whatever, <laughs> you know, so... I was like, damn, that's the one song I wanted to play well. And God, sure enough, I blew that. But, you know, it's something to have a laugh about and not not beat yourself up too badly about it. Well, I just find it fascinating because I know so many musicians and uh, upcoming mixers and producers, too, who just live in constant mental torment <laughs> over mistakes and getting better. And interestingly enough, lots of the guys that I know who have gotten really great at an instrument or production or really anything, of course they challenge themselves and always want to get better and they don't think that they're the hot shit sure. because obviously if they think they're the hot shit, they won't keep getting better. But absolutely, one thing that they share is that they don't seem to take it too hard when they have a bad day or blow a performance or something like that. It's just, they, they, they just don't, they just don't take it too hard. They just keep going. That's all you can do. I mean, it's it's human human nature to make a mistake. And gosh, if you do nine hundred and ninety nine things awesome, but you f one thing up, it's like gosh, you just did almost a thousand things right, and you're gonna get on yourself for the one thing you did wrong. I do tend to recall those moments more than others, like the the bad moments, just because I'm surrounded by so many. You know, where uh, well, I'm trying to word this so I don't sound like a total egomaniac, but, you know, I, I do well most of the time. And, you know, I will remember at the end of the night, you know, oh, yeah, I did blow that. You know, and I, I I fess up to it. You know, a lot of times Eric will come up to me. Eric Peterson will come up to me. He's like, hey, what happened there? I was like, dude, I just gapped. I just totally gapped. And he's like, OK, no, I just wondered. But, you know, I'll, I'll take the blame when I'm when I'm do it. And I also will not take the blame if it's not me. You know, I'll, I'll get down on somebody else if they're coming to me going, hey, man, what did you do here? It's like, do you realize you fucked that up? You know, it's like, oh, wait a minute, I did. You know, so I'm, I'm yeah, I, I, I stand up for myself to myself as well. So I guess. So you just keep it real, basically. I, I, I guess so. You know, if that's if that is the term. I think so. I think that's what that's what it sounds like to me. Awesome. So on the topic of recording, you've been in many different types of situations. I've heard a lot about what it was like recording back in the individual thought pattern days. But, sure. you know, now we live in a whole different world. First of all, just for my dorky self, I want to hear a little bit about recording a death metal record in the early 90s. Um, because to me, that seems... To me, I feel like the modern engineers do not understand 
Like the the generation that started engineering in the past 10 years, maybe, or 15 years, they do not understand what you guys had to go through. Um, Fair enough. To record drums back then. And so I'm wondering if it was more grueling then for you or now. Oh, I, I, I would imagine, well, uh, neither is that grueling other than the fact that the drummer has, he's on the hot plate at first because the session does not move forward unless the drummer gets his bits done most of the time. Um, and even these days, geez, you can have entire albums recorded, bring the drums in at the very end and just play to the click and everything locks up. I've done that plenty of times, but if it's one of those very organic from the ground up, we're not using clicks, we need you to nail everything on the first, you know, you have two days to record 17 tracks or whatever, a day to record 13 tracks, whatever it is. These, like, I am very fortunate in the fact that I, I, I do span both, both approaches and Back then, you just had to have your parts together. You know, it's like your the tape would cost. You know, the two inch tape that you're tracking to cost two hundred fifty dollars per reel. So, it's not like you could do sixty takes of something and and just keep hitting delete after each one and and all that. But you know, that's where you you had to have your your act together in terms of of being prepared. And there, I God, I remember tracking this eight and a half minute long dark angel song called the promise of agony and i remember you know uh, it was you know it was challenging enough to play i suppose but um at the end of my first take our engineer came to me you know walked right into the studio right into my into the drum room right as I'm done tracking. And I'm like, fuck, I nailed it. That was great. Yeah, one take, badass. And he just had the most dejected look on his face. He's like, man, I'm sorry. The tape ran out with about a minute to go. Uh-huh. And, you know, I had my little freak out, like, oh, how can you let this happen? What the <laughs> fuck? And, and I got over it quickly, went in and tracked another one and, and you know, got, got it taken care of. But, you know, it, but just back then you had to perform and, I guess that's where I still have that work ethic involved now. It's like I'm ready to play I'm ready to play the song all the way through. I'm ready to do a good job and I'm ready to make it so you don't have to you know create some pattern that I can't play or 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 something along those lines. It's like I'm I'm these days I I don't mind comping I don't mind, you know, I'll play the song six or seven times, but, you know, and have you pull, you know, obviously maybe by the third take is a good bed track all the way through and you want to pull something from take two and drop that in there and pull something from take six and drop that in there. You know, the the vibe that you're looking for, Mr. Engineer, then, you know, I'm down for that. But I do try to perform everything that's going on the album. It's like that's that's me doing it because... I'm always, I've been under the impression for the past 15 years or so when everything switched over to digital, it's that even though you might have kick drum stuff going on, the acoustics are going to bleed through. So whether or not that is still true, perhaps gating and things like that preclude that, you know, make that not happen anymore, it's still my mentality that. You know, I can't just play some kick drum pattern and say, oh, 
screw that. Let's completely change that on the record. No, I would have to play it that way because that's how I was always told. It's like, yeah, we can't really, yes, we could do a few things, move things to the left or the right a little bit. But as for completely replacing a kick drum pattern, that's going to change the whole ambience or the whole you know dynamic of the entire kit if all of a sudden we just remove whatever air is being pushed by other drums down into the kick drum mics. Like I say, I could be totally naive on that these days, but I, it, that that is still a helpful approach to getting songs done the right way. You know, it's like I'm going to play these songs. I'm going to, I'm not just going to do like some, you know, attempt at a double bass speed, get it kind of close. And then oh, you guys just fix that later. It's like no, I'm going to, I'm going to work to get that done because it's my own pride that. You might grid these kicks, you might grid these drums, but I'm, it's my own pride that is making me play them the way you know, the way they they're gonna sound on the record. You know, I, I guess so. There you go. I kind of wish that more younger drummers would take that pride too. There's not that many that I've worked with who are willing to get good enough to actually play the parts but there there are a few standouts though a i can few, imagine like like alex Runinger is incredible and, yeah I've and, heard. yeah and obsessory is incredible there are some in the new generation that are just phenomenal excellent but i do i do feel like that work ethic uh you know those guys aside i do feel like that work ethic is kind of missing because maybe they grew up in a time where they didn't have to actually play it. And so it's not exactly their fault because if you didn't grow up having to do something, how would you know that you have to do it? That's, that's fair enough. Yeah. But I do wish it was that way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, like I try to give all drummers the benefit of the doubt because, you know, I, I listen to serious liquid metal a lot. You hear a lot of the new bands on that and you hear these psychotic drums. I, I try to pay attention to what's happening out there now. I try to be at least uh, have a working knowledge of most of the bands that are out there. And, you know, and I'm like, hmm, the cynic in me would want to say, Oh, they just pro-tooled the hell out of this, and they just made it happen in the studio. But then I start, you know, the realist in me is like, well, a lot of these young dudes have grown up listening to a lot of guys that are psycho players. So, you know, maybe these this younger generation is just killing it when they're 14, when they're 16, when they're 18. There you know, are I've seen some. a lot of really talented, very young drummers. Okay, you're going to go places, but you've definitely got skills of a, a man twice your age. And so that's that's where I try to go with, rather than just being a cynic, no, oh, they just pro-tooled that, that drummer didn't even play that stuff, they just made that in the studio. You know, I know there's a limitation to that. You can't, you know, I don't know. But hell, these days, who knows what you can do. Um, but, you know, I do realize that there are, the skill set is is the bar has been raised coming out the shoot for a lot of these younger dudes. So I try to give them that benefit of the doubt. It's like, oh, man, they probably just studied really hard, played really well, played along to a lot of the psycho drums out there. You know, like for me, playing along to a Rush song was psychotic when I was 13, you know, but, you know, maybe there's some, you know, 
somebody else of the newer generation that people look towards. It's like, I want to sound like that guy. And that guy actually did play his stuff. So I got to learn how to play his stuff. Stuff like that, maybe. You know, it's kind of funny. One of the, I feel like drumming, like extreme metal drumming, explode. it had like a renaissance in like 2000 five to 2007 or something like suddenly i feel like right in that era the bar suddenly went crazy and you had all these drummers that were suddenly playing like insanely fast like faster than before and insanely technical stuff and i remember talking to this one drummer who I forget what band he was in, but I was sitting side stage and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It's like, how are you doing this? And how did you get, how did you get this good? Like how this seems inhuman. And what happened was that he had listened to records where the drums were totally edited (laughs) and made inhuman through, through pro tools, but he didn't realize that that stuff wasn't actually played. He just figured it was real. So he learned it. Uh, And that's, that's the benefit of the doubt that I try to give every young drummer these days, you know, like, so yes, that's just it. You know, you hear something edited pro tool to shit and perfect sounding and you learn that. And that, yeah, that's, that's what I've been assuming is happening. And, you know, it's interesting that you were mentioning, you know, that day, sometimes it happens. A lot of times it doesn't. You know, so yeah, it goes both ways. <laughs> sure, indeed. I have a question. So, when let's just say that you are going to the studio, and so this is something that I want producer listeners to pay attention to. What could you describe what it would be like um, for you, like a perfect scenario, like what you would expect out of the engineer? Like, if you could, like give us your dream studio experience in terms of how the studio was set up and the engineer behaved, what would that be? I love a very chilled out engineer. I love an engineer that just has, you know, like nothing phases him. Everything just rolls off his back. You know, like guys like Rob Shawcross and and Ulrich Wild come to mind for me in that regard. Super chill. Ulrich Ulrich does our Death Clock albums and everything Brendan Small related, and he's great to work with because he's like, hey Gene, you know what you're doing, and you know better than I know your instrument. So it's just my job to capture what what you're getting and so you know all rick is a big comper as opposed to gridder and that that's helpful for me and um you know just just one thing that is really helpful from the band itself or whoever i'm doing the project with or the session for is their preparation like if you have your songs ready to go or if they're not ready to go to where you and I can work on them a little bit together, then, you know, and I can have my input on what might be comfortable or not for me to play. You know, if you're asking me to play these psychotically fast double bass patterns, then, okay, let me, let me, you know, allow me to do what I need to do to, in order to play those patterns, um, put little stops, put little rests, but, you know, I'm, I'm always looking, you know, I can, I could tack, I, I could tack on a, a half hour's nap in one tiny little rest, you know, from, from my feet and stuff like that. But, you know, if they're prepared with their material and I've been on both sides of the coin where, where 
you know, a lot of times the, 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 the musician is not prepared. He's in the process of writing these songs. We're doing an album together and he's got six songs together, but four of them aren't. So, you know, I, I'll, sometimes they'll leave me alone with the engineers. Like this song's done. Uh, I've tracked, you know, the basic tracks for it. I've tracked the scratch tracks at least. I'm going to let you guys at it while I go back to my place and work on songs, you know, seven through 10. And, you know, that's, that's fair enough. I can get a lot of songs done that way. And just, uh, I, I've been in every situation of studio where, you know, I've been in the super nice ones and I've been in the super rat's ass ones. And as long as, you know, one thing I like, I like the, I like a comfortable place to when I'm not playing drums. So, you know, Give me a couch that I can just stretch out on for a minute, and you know I, I like being lazy. I like as I, I've spent a lot of time making myself comfortable. So if there's a comfortable situation to to you know when there's the downtime that happens with when you're recording, you know computer goes down or you know you need to pick up this one little piece of gear. It's got to get delivered really quick before we carry on. Then give me a comfortable place to chill for a minute. You know, and I, I'm I'm pretty easygoing in the studio, and I used to I used to hate the studio, but now I've I've learned to just it's it's a necessary evil, you know, especially these days. What did you hate about it? So much pressure on the drummer that you know we cannot carry this session forward unless the drummer gets his job done first off right off the bat, and when I was younger. That was a lot of pressure for me, but that's where it's like each album that I did, the red light fever would go away. You know, because I would I would get red light fever as much as anybody else, especially my my early albums. It's like, oh shit, now I'm recording Jesus. And so I I guess as as time's gone on, I've I actually if I'm really familiar with the material, like say a lot of strapping albums, like We've rehearsed a lot for especially the last two or three records. Um, so I was really confident with the material. So I would kind of take the kind of Bernard Purdy sort of approach. It's like be super cocky because I'm awesome. I'm going to nail this. We're going to kill all these songs. They're going to be great. We're going to get great drums. It's going to be awesome. I would just go, you know, and that would be the only time I would ever let myself get I guess cocky, but that's just, useful. That's a very useful time to get cocky. Yeah, if like you're a quarterback, you don't want to go into the game going, "Oh man, I don't know if I'm good enough to do this. I don't know if I can throw the touchdown pass when we need it." You know, it's like, <laughs> "Yes, I can. Give me the ball. I'm ready to do it." You know, I, I that's the attitude I would take, and that kind of got me over my my dread or fear of of that red light. So it was a mental thing for you. It wasn't anything really that the producer said or did it was an internal battle that you won pretty much you know most producers i've worked with i, I don't think i've ever ever worked with like a an absolute dick where it's like i you know i, I can't relate to this guy at all and especially these days because most engineers you know they 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 know who they're bringing in and they understand that okay this this guy might have an approach that works for him and let me just kind of study gene for a minute and see what what works for him and then try to be amenable to his attitude in the studio and oh hey he's got a pretty decent attitude in the studio okay this is going to be great so you know i I do like an engineer that that is forthcoming with the information. Like, you know, 
you're doing a good job or actually, you know, I need a little more of this. You know, you need to, to lean into every beat. You know, a little bit of direction is helpful, but I find that a lot of engineers are like, he knows what he's doing. Leave him alone. He knows what he's doing. And that's, oh, if that's the approach, it's like, okay, let me take over. But then I don't want to hear any complaints afterwards. You know, it's like, if you're letting me, and I'm a pretty decent self-producer, self-editor what or whatever. It's if, if I nailed a part, I'll say I nailed that one. And if I didn't, I'll be like, hey, let me do another take. I, I got a better one in me. You know, I'm, I'm pretty decent in that regard. Even though I'm lazy, I'm, you know, it's still, you have your... I guess your own integrity, you know, you, you just, you don't want to give like, oh, I gave that 80%, but I know they'll fix that in editing later. Yeah. You know, no, you know, you want to give a hundred percent because it's, you have to look at yourself in the mirror every morning and you have to know that, yes, that was me on that record. I did kill it. I did a good job. Whatever they do from here on out with the, with the project is, is their prerogative, but you know, you laid down the best humanly possible drums you could. So Yay. You know, one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the signs of a good producer or a mature producer is knowing when to get out of the artist's way. And sure. so there's some artists where, artists, musicians, same thing, uh, where you should just let them do their thing because there's, there's a reason that they got hired and it's because of their thing. But then at the same time, you have to have the confidence as a producer or engineer to know when, even if the guy is really good at doing his own thing, maybe you need to uh, help him out with a suggestion or something, or maybe he, you know, you need to see the line of when it's okay, when it's helpful to speak up, and when it's not, understand it and walk it. I think that's the one of the markers of a good producer. You know, something that's interesting, and this stuck with me for a while, did did you ever know Shannon Lucas, the old drummer from uh, Black Dahlia yeah. Murder? Yeah, I did. Yeah, we did. Uh, he was touring with somebody else. Yeah, he's been in a few bands. Yeah, but I, I don't Shannon, absolutely. He's... Big, he, big earlobes. Yes, and he's a... Big earlobes and phenomenal player, and I... Absolutely, I a great player. Him on the battle cross record a few years ago and okay he he's one of those players that insists on on it being him and on playing oh that's great yeah, absolutely. yeah like he's the real deal and he was so badass that i basically just let him do his thing and then he got kind of mad at me for not pushing him harder but it, oh wow I, but i was thinking like you don't need to be pushed harder this, these takes are incredible. Like, <laughs> I mean, great. yeah, absolutely. So I've I've had that backfire on me before, but I still stand by it, not having pushed him harder because he didn't need it. He was phenomenal. Yeah, and that's you know that's that's great. You know, I mean, that's that like you said, that's definitely a fine line, and it sounds like you walked that pretty pretty well. So nice work. Well, the the takes were great, but I've it's just it's just interesting. A one thing that I've that I've found is uh, is hard to get over, but important to get over is sometimes I feel like people have to feel like they are doing something productive rather than actually doing something productive, if that makes sense. So maybe we didn't work as hard as we should have because you didn't say anything. 
But then again, did we really need to say anything if it was already perfect? No, I'm, I, I I hear what you're saying there. Yeah, and absolutely, it's that that that's a fine line. But it's okay, you know, is is as long as it is productive. And you know, that's that's one thing. Like with with strapping, every album we recorded, every live show we ever played, I really felt like this is going to change somebody's life. This album will change probably a few people's lives. Our live show, somebody's life is going to be changed tonight. They're going to come up afterwards and go, oh, my God, I know what I want to do with my life. I know what I want to do with my music. And so if you if you go into a project with that in mind, that you're going to change lives, it's like that, that that's a lot of responsibility that you put on yourself. But, hey, that's just one more challenge to have. And, you know, that's why. A good musician will push themselves. You know, they 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 want that to be them. They want that mm-hmm. to be you know a true representation of where they're at at that time. Maybe in ten years they're going to be way more advanced. But hey, this is the best I have right now, and I'm giving you my absolute best. So that's one way that I've always wanted to, you know, like just leave a project behind. You know, it's like hey, I gave you my absolute all, and I'm proud of what I did. So. So, you know, whatever you guys want to do with it, that's your prerogative, but and I'm ready to I'm ready to walk on from this and you know, with my head held high sort of thing. I don't think I've ever come out of a record where I'm like, "Oh man, I just botched that entire thing." I don't think so at all. So, there you go. Great. Well, before we uh, wrap up, I've got a few questions here from our audience if you don't mind answering. Sure. Them. They were stoked uh, that we brought you on as oh, cool. as am I. So, Here's uh, um, there's quite a few. I wanna. I'm looking for ones that we didn't already cover. Okie doke. So here's one from Adam Castle, and it's kind of long. What do you look for in a drum tone slash sound versus the arrangement of the song and the parts you play? I've always loved Gene's playing and sound, and think his tastefulness is often overlooked for this insane skill and monster sound in many ways he reminds me of roger taylor from queen that big beefy awesome. sound with real groove and taste and power also gene is proof that wood beaters are superior darn tootin <laughs> well i guess what i look you know when it comes to like say how the drums are gonna be presented uh on 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 record i just try to give as as much of my tone as I can, like we try to tune the drums per project. Like some projects, I tune the drums up a little bit more. Other times, you know, I, I like them kind of low, and I like that. I Roger Taylor has one of the greatest drum sounds ever. You know, like Roy Thomas Baker was just an absolute genius with his drum tones. And yeah, I try to achieve the Roger Taylor drum tone. That's very cool that he pointed that out. No, good good ear. Yeah, absolutely, and. I guess the thing I, you know, because these days with all the sound replacing that goes on, it's like, okay, well, I usually try to have a pretty decent kit. I don't think I've had to sound replace much over over time, perhaps. I, that's something I might not even know about. But um, if I do sound replace, I try to do the one hits beforehand of my own drums. So give you, you know, a lot of clarity if you have to replace something, then... You know, at least you've got my own drums to do it with. And I, I remember a session, the session that I did right before I joined that uh, Testament tour in in progress. Um, I remember that kit 
was not the best sounding kit. They might have sound replaced it, but I did try to tune it as, as good as possible. The thing I look for these days is clarity more than anything. Like the tones are going to be whatever they are. I try to give a good tone to tape, but it's a matter of like when it comes down to the mix that, uh, you know, that's where it's really important. And I, I, I'm all about the clarity, you know, and sometimes I work in rooms that aren't the largest drum room around, but the engineer knows his room. He knows what to do with it and maximize whatever sonic qualities that tiny closet of a room might have. So I guess when it comes to mixing, I love being involved in mixes. Many times I'm not. And, uh, but I, I love it when I am involved because, for instance, something like we used to do with strapping is a lot of, we didn't want, I didn't want two kick drums that sounded the exact same. Yes, we did, you know, we multi-layered the, the triggers on, on strapping records. Hey, we used the Meshuggah kick from uh, Destroy, Erase, Improve um, on City. Like we actually, Devin actually yoinked the file from Tomas Skogsberg, <laughs> uh, the the engineer, and uh, or wait, Tomas Sandstrom, I think, is who we used. Yeah, he he, you know, we, they were doing a project together, and you know, he was able to find Tomas's destroy, erase, improve kick drum, and he just yoinked it, and that was one of the ones that we blended. We <laughs> we tended to use a blend. Yoink, that's a good word. Yeah, so. That happened, but one thing we try to do is we try to. Uh, I, I like to detune my right kick from my left kick, even if we're using like triggers and samples and replacements and all that sort of stuff. I still don't like. I'm not a big fan of that, you know, machine gun, you know, both kicks sound the exact same. Typewriter. I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not super into that. So, like, I know Fear Factory, they had their approach. They like that. And so those kicks were, you know, we want, they wanted the drums to sound like a machine. I understand all that. But if, if I have my druthers, then I'm, I'm all about, let's detune the right kick from the left. I like the left one to be. You know, just a semitone higher than the right. So we'll usually take the, you know, work with the acoustics. And that's why I like to blend the acoustics in, tune them as close as possible, but just let both acoustics have their own dynamics. And so it's not just, you know, it's like, you know, a little bit of like, you know, just a little bit of breath and bounce to it. That's one thing we always tried with strapping, and I'm, I'm not afraid to take a pulse point, like right on the top of every bar and just like, Add add just the you know the tiniest stick of volume to to a pulse somewhere in the middle of all of it. I like doing that, and you know just to give the drums a little bit more dynamics in this age of digital perfection. You know, just try to give something a little bit of of dynamics. So so I mean that was a that was a really cool question. But yeah, I guess the clarity is the most important thing for me. You know, just I play the drums. You might as well hear them. I'm more concerned with the clarity of them than, you know, feel free to back off on the tom tone if that's affecting the clarity. Or, you know, I like the cymbals to come through. And there's many a time when I'm like, oh, man, I'm not really into the cymbal tone that, that this final prod product is. But what can you do? You know, there's going to be another record somewhere. We're going to record something somewhere else. So get it right on the next one. Well, they you have a lot of uh, nuance in your playing, so I can imagine that 
it's frustrating if that gets lost in the mix. Uh, the one thing that gets lost all the time on on every one of my records, it never comes. This is something I would love to improve is the ghost notes that I, I knew play you on were going to say that. I knew yeah. you were going to say that. Yeah, we. There's a, yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say we actually have spent a lot of time showing people how to mix those properly because cool. they get lost. That's the number one thing that the good drummers complain about with mixes like when working with them they always say that on their previous records that's the one thing that that they hate is that they're all lost or yes whatever. absolutely and so i you know i've tried to put more of an attack on the ghost notes but then that's not a ghost note you know if you're if you're leveling up your attack of a ghost then that's you know that's not the natural feel that you're getting the one thing that i try to do is if, if it's something that's really important to me is like because a lot of times if you if you've got the multi-sampled snare going you know I, I try to stay away from that too but i understand that you know engineers will add add little nuances to make it you know the clarity of it and i i get that a lot of times if you hit the if you hit the ghost notes too hard or you try to ghost note the samples it just sounds like this digital you know just this horrible sound so it's like okay well maybe anywhere i'm hitting a ghost note just let the acoustic drum you know boost the ghost note in mix on the acoustic drum and then it'll sound more natural you know it just won't sound like a or whatever the ghost note is, you know, it just, it sounds like a little brushy little ghost note, just raise the volume of it. And these days the guitars are so loud and they're so overdriven and all that sort of stuff that, you know, I, I know going into some projects, like if you have ghost notes on this, you know, they're not going to come out. And it's like, you just give into <laughs> it and just go, okay, well, maybe somebody ever catches me playing these songs live, which has happened many times, like with strapping stuff, we lost all ghost notes with strapping and people would be on the side of the stage watching, especially on those sounds of the underground tours and the Oz fest where you got, you know, a lot of people hanging around behind the set or whatever, you know, they'd be like, I had, I had no idea you were doing all that with your snare because all I ever hear is just a bat, 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 bat. And it's like, well, indeed, you know, I, we're not to the point where we know how to get a ghost note through a through a mix these days, but hey, we're, we're going to work on that. I'm going to send you, just just because I'm going to send you some videos that we've made about that topic, just because there are a lot of the techniques for making them stand out, I feel like are stuff that just some guys have figured out in the past few months kind of or past cool. year because like yeah it's kind of i mean if i feel like it's something that engineers should have focused on earlier because drummers have been complaining about this for years Fair but enough. but i guess a lot of the metal guys you know, a lot of the metal mixers, their priority has always been the sickest guitar tone, the biggest sure. snare tone, you know, like stuff like that. And then once you get once you get past all these priorities, certain things like ghost notes, you know, just didn't they just get, didn't get the attention that they deserved because they weren't the priority while there were so many other things that were, I guess, super highly competitive between between mix engineers. Absolutely, I can see that. You know, they're all fighting for the sickest guitar tone and they forget the ghost notes. But 
so yeah, I'll send you a few videos that we've made because oh, there great, are thanks. there are some ways to get around it or to uh, to bring them out in the mix more. Just not many guys are doing it, but I think they might they might start to. So there is hope. Yeah, excellent. Hey, we love that. We love hope. Yeah, yeah there. The, <laughs> hope hope does not die today. So here's a question from Sasha Vino, which is, you come from a time where it was more obvious about how to make a living from music. If you rule, you go make an album and you go play some tours, no Instagram, YouTube, Facebook marketing, anything. With all this shifting in our economy, what are the three don't do that you would absolutely tell up and coming people? Well, let me start with try some of the try this or try mm -hmm. that is to to kind of figure out with with some of this economy is i would imagine you know i never did this but i wish i did i had to learn from the school of hard knocks on this one but you know learn how to read a contract i'm really good with reading legalese now it's not that challenging but a lot of times when you get you know especially back in the day when your contract was this big you know 2 inch thick you know, dossier or whatever. I, I taught myself legalese, and um, it's 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 not all that challenging. But learn how to read what you are about to sign. It, it, it's one thing because I mean, back in the day, we would hire a lawyer, and it, I remember Dark Angel had Prince's lawyer. You know, but when he's working with guys like Prince and people of that caliber, the tiny little thrash metal band is not going to get a lot of. Uh, you know, pouring over their their deal. So we signed contracts that lawyers looked over and, you know, we ended up getting screwed. So, I, you know, early on, I was like, man, I'm not going to let this happen anymore. So, you know, I've learned how to read contracts. That's something to try. Maybe perhaps take a business course just so you know how to, you know, just even manage your money, I suppose. You know, I never did that either. I never went to, never went to college, but I would imagine that, that that couldn't hurt. In in this economy these days, it's like, you know, when, when the file sharing started happening and the, the you know, down, illegal downloads and all that, that yes, that has changed our economy drastically, our musical economy. I don't think, you know, I think, a lot of times that was very young people doing that, taking advantage of the new technology where they could do that. And like, like, why, why would I buy this when I can get it for free? Now I can listen to, you know, a thousand bands as opposed to 10 that I could afford to buy. You know, I, I understand that's people want the shortest route to, to, you know, pleasure, I suppose. But one thing I don't think anybody thought about is that, okay, Guys of my age, my experience, we're feeling that crunch because this is the time when you want to be able to, uh, uh, you know, enjoy the fruits of your labor. You want to be able to record a record, put it out, make a nice living from that album because that's what we were taught. You know, when I was young, I was taught this is what's going to happen for you. And that it that really isn't the case anymore. But a lot of the young folks that helped design this path that we are on, now they're in that situation where, hey, at least I got to see some album royalties. I got to I, I got to sell, you know, 
a hundred thousand records of something and make some cash off that. You guys, you know, you could have a hundred thousand downloads and never see a dime from it. And you, 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 got could, some, you got some of the getting while well, the getting was good. It, indeed. And now a lot of the young young dudes out there, it's like this is the template that you created for yourselves. I'd love to see how you work yourselves out of this. They're trying with all the social medias and stuff, but that's all great advertisement, but I am not aware enough of social media's impact on income. You know, I'm just learning how to monetize things on social media, on YouTube's and that sort of thing. But, you know, maybe these young kids are are becoming masters of that, but it's like, hey, you youngins, you you created this for yourselves. You know, you made this bed and I fortunately have been able to you know, make some money off some some earlier projects. You know, do a little bit here and there, make a little cash here and there. You now don't have that that aspect to this uh, available to you. So I know you got to figure out some other way to make some cash. And I didn't do this; you did. So you figure it out, young dudes. You know, <laughs> like for those who like to steal files and all that. You know, it's like. You know, like, God, I'm, I'm in that boat right now. You know, I've got my new DVD that just came out and the climate has changed. You know, like, why buy, why purchase a physical copy of a DVD when you can go on some torrent site and just watch it, you know, for free? I, I, I understand the lethargy involved. I get it. But, you know, there's not some mindless corporation that put up money for this DVD for me to make it and, and distribute it. It's all my money. I put my own cash into it. I, I do this. So and it looks I, great, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. You know, I, I don't take money from like, say my sponsors. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have Pearl breathing down my neck saying, Hey, you got to do something like this or Sabian telling me, well, you should do it like this. Not that they necessarily would to begin with, but I X out that possibility by doing it on, on my own dime. And it is, you know, it, it is me who either reaps the benefit or suffers from lack of interest in purchasing it you know if people can go to a torrent site and download it then i understand why they would do that it's like fuck i don't want to buy this thing but i do want to see it so i'll go find some torrent site and and download it and it never seems to matter to people what they are doing to others with that philosophy and so hey you know life's tough get a helmet We'll work our way around it. We'll figure it out. You know, these days you record an album and that's just a demo to be able to go out and play shows, sell merch. You know, that's that's how you make your money. It's pretty well known these days. That's how you make any money. But even T-shirts, those aren't free. You know, if you want a quality shirt that's going to sell and not just some one color rat's ass $6 shirt, um, you know, you want to have a quality shirt, that's going to cost you too. So where do you get that capital? So it's this kind of like this Ouroboros snake that just keeps eating its own tail. And, and every once in a while, it'll stop, stop chomping on itself enough to let somebody take advantage of some some aspect. And 
we are all figuring that out. Uh, there is a new template coming, and I'm not sure what it is, but I can, I, you know, there's bound to be, you know. So, at right now, musicians of my ilk, my age, are, you know, we're adapting in the best way we know how, and that's where, okay, you put out this demo, you know, your brand new album that used to be the thing you were looking for. You know, now you just kind of put that out in order to open up the avenues of touring and merch selling. And, you know, that that makes it a lot more complicated. You know, if you don't have income from the thing you spend your six months working on and then it's not going to provide an income for you, man, Jesus. Thank you, youngins. Yeah, that definitely is totally different that now the album is the advertisement for everything else. Absolutely. People don't even buy the new records, you know. I mean, obviously the 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 you know you could put out this killer badass. God, this is us at the top of our game, and people are still like, oh, we just want to hear songs from the first two or three records. You know, that's when you guys were good. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure you get sick of that one. Hey, I'm uh, you know I'm always down like especially if it's an album that I performed on. Yeah, I want to play songs off you know like the the New Testament record. Yeah, I want to play a bunch of songs off the new album. Yeah, I want to play songs off of that that you know the in- entertaining records. I'm sure you know I don't know how the guys feel about oh having to trot out you know boy into the pit for the thousandth time or you know over the wall or you know disciples of the watch or whatever but hey if that's what your fan base is there to hear and they're still going to buy a t-shirt on the way out then hey that's that's the best you can do you know <laughs> totally here's one from mark Wustenhagen, which is how do you react when the producer asks you to move your symbols in your setup i am very fortunate is that i learned at an early age keep your symbols very far away from your toms so i've never had that issue happen um Great. i have a pretty wide you know there's a good foot foot and a half between every cymbal and every tom so um i know a lot of drum kits have you know boy cymbals are right on top of those toms and i can see where an engineer is going to be like hey man you're getting a lot of bleed we can't have that but i i that's just my natural initial setup was okay Symbols way up high and far away from drums, and I've I've never had that issue ever happen. Well, I've always told drummers, man, that when they come in and they want an organic sound with minimal replacement, but then they have their symbols like an inch off of the toms. It's like, dude, if you want, if you actually want what you say you want, you're gonna have to work with me on this and raise those symbols. You're tying my hands behind my back. Absolutely, you know. So I've I've had I've had engineers you know look at my setup, come in, look at the setup, and go, oh god, thank god, yeah. you know, like oh cool, <laughs> totally, thank you, dude. That's that's the moment you see a drummer set up like that. The the feeling that you get is gratitude, pure, <laughs> <laughs> pure gratitude. Awesome. So here's one from Anthony Zilante, which is you spoke in Death Clock interviews about fleshing out a song for a day to make it seem like you've spent months refining a song. Do you have any advice about how to keep yourself and your bandmates focused and positive when you're doing these long sessions? Well, let me clarify that. uh, Working out, fleshing out a Death Clock song in a couple of hours, 
Like getting Boom. a day on a death clock song. I'm like, wait, what? When did that ever happen? No, we get <laughs> a couple hours a piece, you know? Because um, I still have to track the thing over a couple of hours too. So, and we've got another one to do after this. So we got to get a couple songs done at least, you know? And if they're short, then we got to get three or four done a day. But you know what? That is just a little bit of self, uh, self, you know, what, uh, Policing, like if you have just a limited bit, limited amount of time, and every you know, and say you're on the clock or something, you got to figure it out. The the you got to figure out this arrangement. Then I would uh, I would just suggest surround yourself with musicians that have that are of like mind, and you know they. That's one thing I've told people is is. Find musicians. Maybe they're not the best musicians in town, but if they share your focus, they share your vision. They, you know, you gotta, you gotta be with guys in your band that you can hang with. And if you all share the same musical vision, like yes, we want to achieve something. We and we are willing to work to do it. This, you know, like this is a job. It's if if you uh, it's it's a great job it's a it's a fun job it's a very creative job but if you approach this as a job like like Devin Townsend he's 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 the master of this and he's told you know he's told me back in the early, you know back in the day he's like well you figure if you you know this is a job if you approach this like a job and you spend you know ten hours a day at your job you're going to be successful at it with with Devin and with musicians, sometimes that's a 16 hour day. But yeah. <laughs> if you approach it like, you know, I'm getting good work done here and tomorrow I'm going to get up and do the, you know, do more work. You know, that's, that's, that's a helpful attitude to have. And, and, you know, if you, if you have to whip your bandmates into shape by, you know, in, in terms of focus, then, you know, I, I used to have to do that with Dark Angel. I was a real taskmaster. I, I ran the whole show there towards la- for the last couple of years, and you know, you just try to find people that are willing to self police their own focus. Like you find that those musicians that are like, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want this to work. I want this song to be badass. So, yeah, rather I could be texting my girl for the next half hour, or I could be in here working on on this song or I could be out at the bar next door tossing back a few or I could be in here working on this song you want to find the guys that are like hey I, I know when to prioritize you know I'll, let's work on this song and then then we'll hit the bar afterwards you yeah. know in my most successful collaborations and I don't just mean musical I mean business partners as well um, just anything that's never been an issue uh, the guys that I've gotten the best results out of life with have always everyone's always just naturally focused on the task that needed to be completed sure it was always my rougher situations where i had to police people and and those are those tend to be the situations where you know not you don't have as many like minds going for it so you don't end up with as good of a final outcome I guess. Absolutely. I, I can see where it, it, it could only take one tiny question session with yourself of why am I doing this with these guys? If you have to ask that, then sometimes it's, oh shit, it's already, 
Yep. You've already lost it. You know, it's like you want that that little self moment with yourself to be like, man, I love doing this with these guys. Everybody's, yes. you know, got a good mindset about this and we're getting stuff done. Yes. You know, so man, I've been that. on both ends of that. And sure. man, it's so much better when you can have the positive version. Absolutely. I have too. And it's I like the positive. Totally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So here's one from Eric Burt. How and why did you start playing open-handed? What are the benefits you found to playing this way? Well, the reason I started playing open-handed was merely where my where my record player was located when I was a kid. It was on, like, say, if you're lying down on your bed staring at the ceiling, it would be on the left side. So as you're sitting on the corner of your bed, you know, up at the top by the headboard, that's where my record player was located so if you're sitting on your bed playing along with your favorite stuff playing on your bed if you notice like i'm playing in like as you're sitting on the bed you're playing in the top right corner of the bed the at the top corner is kind of the snare as you get towards the middle it goes lower you know you got more beef in the center of your of your bed so my record player was on the right side of my bed there so you know i'd switch a record play on it and the snare sound is kind of the top corner because that's the highest and the kick drum sound is kind of in the center and so the center was where my left hand is the top corner is where my right hand is so it just made sense you know i was born ambidextrous so you know i i i I think everybody's ambidextrous to a, to a large degree, but I do tons of things left-handed, tons of things right-handed, and that's really about it. And when I applied that to the kit, I got told when I was a, when I was a youngster, I got told by everybody, "Oh, that's wrong. You have to cross over. You can't do it like that. What are you doing?" And all it took was one drummer in town. Uh, you know, I grew up in in L.A. Um, one L.A. drummer from this really killer band. To come over to my house one day, I talked him into coming over to my house and playing my drums with me a little bit. And, you know, it was kind of like the only lesson I've ever taken in my life. He took one look at my kit and said, you know, and my style. And he's like, this is great, man. You could, you could have a mountain of cymbals over here. You can have a mountain of drums over here. What you're doing is awesome. And I'm like, thank you. I was like 13 or so at the time, maybe 15 or something. And finally somebody said, I am not a freak. You know, it's like, this is good what you're doing. And God, I think Billy Cobham plays open-handed, doesn't he? You know, a few drummers have over the, and every time I would see an open-handed drummer, I'd be like, oh, neato, cool. You know, so um, that's really about it. That's why I play open-handed is just where my record player was located when I was eight. <laughs> Interesting. So here's one from Michael Goodrich. Did you ever track down your stolen boots? And if not, did you replace them? And what kind? They did get tracked down. They were, you know, it was in Santiago, Chile. We flew into to the show and we played the show and my boots were gone. My, the whole bag was gone. The whole, you know, had yeah, triggers and, and the trigger module and everything was gone. My whole gear bag was gone. And I should have been concerned with the, you know, $2,000 amounts worth of gear in there. But I was like, oh, my boots, shit. But, um... I got a call three weeks, or an email, actually, I think, um, three weeks later saying, hey, this is so-and-so from 
from luggage customs down at Santiago Airport. We've got this bag that has your has your name on it. And you know, we went back to the to the airport a few times that day to, you know, hey, is the bag come in? Is the bag come in? Come back come in. Um and they told us no. But the bag ended up showing up. It sat there in the airport for three weeks. They sent it back. I got it back. I I I used those boots on on the latest DVD. I have since had to retire those boots because uh, they, as you could see on the DVD, they are just shot. You know, I started using them ten years earlier, twelve years earlier with strapping, and and they they're just shot. I still got them. You know, they got them in the closet. Um, but you know, I that weekend I had to end up. You know, I the only reason I ever wore boots is just that those are the boots that I wore. I just I, I wore those. Those were my shoes, and they started to getting to be in such bad shape that I would have to like just wear tennis shoes on the planes or to travel, and then I would pack the boots. And that's the whole reason why I played in the boots, so I didn't have to pack this special <laughs> pair of drum shoes. And you know, it's just like go up on stage and what you wear off stage. I'm. That's what I'm down with. So I wear tennis shoes these days. I don't wear as many boots, but, uh, you know, that's why I had to retire those because, you know, I started having to pack them. It's like, this is silly. Just, oh, fuck, just retire them, play in tennis shoes now. So there you go. There you go. So, man, so many people are asking about working with Devin. They all just want to know. And I guess... I I do have a question because I've met him a few times and I've talked to him and I've never worked with him. He strikes me as a brilliant dude who can be somewhat unpredictable, but brilliant. And so you kind of got to ride the wave. Absolutely. That, so is that, that, so that's accurate. Those are my, okay. So yeah. in that type of scenario, back to what we were talking about before, you have to be a really good communicator so that, number one, so you keep up, and number two, so that you understand what it is that person wants out of you and expects out of you, and so you can give it to them so that you know you can be happy, happy working together. How did you approach communicating with him, and how did you approach the working environment? Well, I saw how hard he did work, and the Devin that I first met when we first started putting City together was not the same Devin that he evolved into a few years into it. He definitely had a manic quality to him that was very infectious. It was great, you know, and a, a real, you know, he's 23 when we first got together, you know, and, and he had this total cocky attitude that I thought was awesome. He had the music to back it up. I thought that was awesome. He had the balls to put in the middle of the city uh, sleeve. It says, hey, asshole, fuck you and your shitty music. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that, you know, and I, yeah, let's put that on a shirt. And, um, you know, uh, Devin was great to work with. He, he was always great to work with. And there were times when, you know, you could see where the the challenge of strapping on Devin's psyche was starting to get to him, you know, because he really felt like that was an act for him. And he, you know, he came to us at one point and just said, man, I just, I can't do the act anymore. That, that jerk on stage telling, you know, 
saying, you know, being the Don Rickles of, of metal, you know, it was just, it was weighing on him and we could see it. So when it was time to move on for dev, I, I, you know, I was actually okay with it. It was like, Oh man, I see what this is doing to you. And I, I realized that whatever you're doing with strapping is taking you away from your, your projects that you do really want to pursue. I understand that. So by the time it was time to move on, you know, I, I, I understood. I was, I was, I was okay with it because I was like, okay, let me put a plan together for myself and what I'm going to do after strapping. We were just starting to make some money. We were just starting to make some headway in, in, in the industry. And, you know, Devin, for his own good, had to pull the plug from it. I understood. And I was, I, I always, even when I was in Dark Angel, my first band, I never thought, thought Dark Angel was going to be my only band I'm ever in. I'm sure I'm going to be in other bands with other musicians. And I just applied that same approach to the end of strapping. It's like, hey, I'm going to concentrate on myself now. Hey, tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to put out a DVD, see how that works, you know? And I'm going to, I'm going to just move around the industry at my own will and, and, you know, I, I'm establishing myself, and I'm established to a to a degree, but I'm going to establish myself even more. But working with Devin was always was always killer. You know, he's he he was really easy to work with, and and you know, he was never a taskmaster. Um, and I was pretty focused too. You know, I, I admit my Vancouver era, I did get involved in other things that that you know, like I started partying more. I I, I was never that much into that beforehand but you know stuff like that and i've since given that up but um you know uh by partying i just mean drinking more you know but um we all have that phase <laughs> yeah i i had that i didn't you know i never drank when i was in dark angel i was a pretty sober guy i was a young focused guy i was very focused on like i want to learn this industry i want to i want to i want to have an impact on it i want to survive within it so you know while maybe other other guys will go out and you know cruise for chicks or or you know spend a lot of time in the bar i'll be in the back of the bus writing the next dark angel record or whatever and with when I was in Vancouver with strapping, there was a lot of downtime, you know, so I joined a lot of Vancouver bands, a lot of kick-ass bands that were all really awesome. But, you know, the one thing, you know, definitely learning, like I mentioned earlier, Devin's work ethic was, hey, if you apply the same attitude that you would if you had a job that you didn't want to get fired from, a job that you wanted to succeed at, you apply this to the music industry. And at the end of the day, you're, you know, you've gotten a lot accomplished on a day-to-day -day basis. So, I, that's what I. That's one thing I definitely learned from Devin, and it, it was great. You know, I, I apply that these days. It's so amazing to me that people think of him as this crazy genius, and there is that element to it. Of course, he is a, a, an insane genius, but at the same time, none of that would be possible. None of his success would be possible, or the legacy, or I, he's somewhat legendary at this point. None of that would be possible, in my opinion, unless. He did have a sane outlook, a sane and realistic, practical outlook that you look at this like a job, you treat it like a job. Absolutely. Yeah. If he was truly a drooling, insane guy that, you know, was, yep. was yeah, he wouldn't have the work ethic that he did. And, you know, and yes, there is, I don't, I think there used to be not so much an insanity to Devin, but there might have been a, yeah, a, an unpredictability, you know, and that was... 
you know, you never knew what Dev was going to say on camera, on microphone, on stage, backstage to somebody that he shouldn't be saying it to. <laughs> but that was, but that was Dev, and it was, it was, it was humorous most of the time. You know, it was, it's nothing. Nobody ever got into super huge trouble because Dev had said the wrong thing to the wrong guy or something. Dev would just blurt out. You know, he he, he didn't have a lot of uh, internal monologue going on there, or dialogue, whatever it is. You know, he didn't have the internal off switch. So that was great. It was like, cool. Somebody who's non-PC and just has an opinion on things and has a strong opinion of himself. I do of me. I recognize that. So hell yeah, let's go. Let's make this happen. I'm, I'm ready to go into war with you, buddy. So yeah, we did for you know a dozen years and it was great. It was awesome. Great answer. Here's one and final question. And this is from Robert Dewey Atkins. And it's, what differences and adjustments did you go through playing in so many diverse bands like Death, Fury Factory, Testament, Devin Townsend? Are the roles that much different in each band? And let me add to that, as a musician and also as a team member. Absolutely, because I do feel like, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, bands are like families or bands are like marriages. I tend to feel like bands are more like teams. And, you know, and they say, you know, not everybody could be the quarterback. And I understand that, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be the linebacker that goes in and, you know, sacks the quarterback if I have to. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to play roles. I am an alpha male. I am very willing to lead a project, but I am also willing to allow others to lead, keep, you know, that's that the differences in the bands is really the differences in the people that are in each band. And that's one thing I've, I've, I've just learned over the years is is how to communicate with folks and and you know sometimes your opinion is not necessary. You might have a strong opinion about this right now, but you now might not be the best moment to lay that opinion down, know when to you know know when to speak, know when to shut up, you know, like your opinion might although it's a valid opinion and it might help the project Maybe at this moment in time, it it won't serve a proper usage to spurt out that opinion right now. But if you catch somebody a little bit later when when things are a little bit different, you say, hey, I was thinking about this situation that we're in. What if we were to try this approach? And somebody would be like, hey, that is a good, you know, that is a good approach. Okay. I wasn't thinking about that earlier, but yeah, that's that's it. Okay, let's do that. You get it done, you know. And one thing I've learned over the course of years, like if you want to get like piece of musical idea out, and I did this with Devin many times, um, and this is a secret I'm letting out, is like, I'll write something and I'll say, dude, you play, I remember this riff, you played it six months ago, or this vocal line you sang three months ago, and that's always stuck in my head. And you sing it back to him, you play the riff for him, they're like, I did that? Like, yeah, like, I like that. You know, but if it's your idea, maybe it's not going to be accepted. Dude, that is such a good, that is so smart. (laughs) I've learned that. And it's, it's merely to, to, to help the song. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I don't care if my riffs are used or my vocal lines are used, if it's not going to serve the song, but if it's like, wow, this will really make the song a little bit better if we try this approach. Hey dude, you did this. You know, really? Wow, I kind of like that, you know. But if it's like, hey, man, I got this idea I want to show you right now. Let me sing it for you. Then, you know, sometimes people just kind of clam up. And 
You know, so I've learned that. That's pretty good. Try well, that, kids. Well, some people, and they, I feel like they don't, they don't mean to be this way, but they just don't take as much interest in an idea if it's not their own. Absolutely, it's I understand human, that. It's a human nature thing. I, I'm the same way. You know. Like, especially if you're, if it's something that I've already, it's a song that I created and it exists in my brain in this way and somebody else wants to come along and, you know, think they're adding to it. I, I get the same way. It's like, oh, you know, I'm climbing up, I'm closing down, you know, but if somebody were to come to me and say, gee, you wrote this. <laughs> I'm like, wow, oh, man, that is a badass idea I wrote. Yeah, cool. <laughs> That's clever, dude. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been awesome catching up and talking oh, to you and getting I, I appreciate it, stuff. man. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's really cool. And uh, just so you know, uh, we're going to be linking to the the DVD in the show notes. So anyone who wants to check out Atomic Clock 2, just go to the, uh, the podcast show notes and we've got links to everything Gene Hoagland related there. Excellent. Wonderful. I appreciate that. Hoaglandindustries.com. You can get it in digital form now. You know, do it's not it. just out on DVD. So please do. Absolutely. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.